Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Smith. He is the founder of the Institute for Responsible Technology, and he is the author of the book, Seeds of Deception, Exposing Industry and Government Lies About the Safety of Genetically Engineered Foods That We're Eating. He is the author of Genetic Roulette, The Documented Health Risks of Genetically Engineered Foods. I have to say of all of the subjects that I've covered and am deeply concerned about, genetically modified food is one of the most important subjects that anybody should be listening to aside from what's in our water. I am deeply concerned about what the population is eating, the stronghold that Monsanto has over the FDA and how the FDA and the EPA are complicit in bringing us these toxic, poisonous foods that are destroying our food supply. But let me say no more. Jeffrey Smith, you should be getting the Nobel Prize. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Jeffrey Smith to It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you, Kim. Great to be here. I'm very disturbed by what I've learned in Seeds of Deception, mostly because these seeds and these foods are already created in our food supply, in the international food supply. And I want to know if you can explain what a promoter is and the basic paradigm on genes. Great. Um, in our DNA, we have a whole uh, symphony that's being controlled. Certain genes are being turned on and off according to the needs of the cell. And the, each cell has its own promoter or on switch, which, gets, which turns it on. Now, with genetic engineering, you take genes from one species and you force it into the DNA of another species that would never naturally contain those genes. And you have to force those genes on by putting in a, a, your own promoter, typically from a virus, and that turns the gene on 24-7 at high volume, and it, it completely ignores the needs of the cell because we don't, we don't understand the language of the DNA. And so we stick in these genes, we stick in the promoter which turns it on, and it causes these, these genes to produce large amounts of new proteins, and these proteins can have effects on health, they can influence other uh, metabolic pathways, and not only that, but the process of inserting the gene, which is typically done through a gene gun or bacterial infection, as well as cloning the cell into a, a GM plant, causes massive collateral damage in the DNA, and can, change, can cause hundreds or thousands of mutations. And also, up to 5% of the existing natural genes in the organism can change their levels of expression when a single gene is inserted. And as I understand through reading, it makes the gene sequence unstable. Is that correct? It absolutely can. There is a, there is a, a recombinant hotspot within the promoter, which some people believe can make the gene the, the, the genome unstable after the insertion. Also, the process can completely dislocate large sections of genes, putting them even on different chromosomes. Uh, the promoter can accidentally switch on other genes down the stream from the inserted gene, causing them to permanently go on. Uh, it's, it becomes basically a genetic roulette. It was the, the concept of the insertion and the promoter and all that, which was the inspiration for the name of my book, Genetic Roulette, because we really do not have a precise technology or understanding of the impacts of this primitive technology. I was on an airplane a few years ago going to do business. And I sat near a gentleman and his associate, I think they were from GE. 
and I don't know how we got starting to talk about uh, starving people. I said, I wish that they were not being given genetically modified food because they're going to be sick and die very young. They're going to have problems physically that they never imagined. And he turned to me and he said, how dare you say that about feeding people that don't have food? It's better than nothing. And (laughs) I really wanted to ask you what your take is with the paradigm that the people that are starving should be, quote, lucky to get genetically modified food. And that's why it's being allowed and empowered to happen in developing nations. Well, the whole concept that GMOs are needed to feed the world was basically the product of the public relations companies that were hired by Monsanto and the other biotech industry companies. Um, There's no truth to it. In fact, it actually works against feeding a hungry world. Let me explain. Uh, The concept that GMOs will feed the world is based on the premise that in order to feed the world, you simply need to increase yield. Now, that premise is false. We know that there's more food per person than any time in human history today, and yet about a billion people go to bed hungry or malnourished every day. And that um, it is not the yield figures which are determining uh, poverty or determining uh, starvation. It's more poverty and distribution of food. But let's pretend for a moment that yield is the uh, answer, which they do. It turns out that the average genetically modified crop reduces yield. They've never genetically modified crops specifically to increase yield. And the very comprehensive report called Failure to Yield by the Union of Concerned Scientists is the most uh, in-depth evaluation of yield figures. And it shows that, for example, genetically modified soy reduces yield by 5 to 10 percent. Canola is down. Cotton is down. There's a tiny percentage increase in some cases with a certain type of corn, but it's dwarfed by the increase in yields from natural selective breeding. Now, in addition, if something is to feed the hungry world, it needs to be uh, reliable. It needs to yield in a reliable way so that the farmer doesn't end up impoverished. Now, the process of genetic engineering, as we just discussed, is fraught with unpredicted side effects. And we see that not only in terms of its impacts on health, which we can talk about in great detail soon, but also on its growing conditions, which are the the uncertainties are magnified by all the complexity of an ecosystem. And so in India, where Monsanto has pushed its genetically modified cotton plants engineered with a gene that produces an insecticide called BT to kill the bollworm. Um, It is not reliable. Very often there's traumatic uh, problems with the yield. Sometimes the seeds don't germinate. Sometimes the crops get infested with other pests or the bowls bowls are smaller or they, they have root rod or leaf curl. It turns out that Monsanto has convinced millions of cotton farmers to borrow money to pay for their more expensive genetically modified seeds and associated chemicals. And so many of these farmers are not able to even pay back their loans. Many commit suicide when they're faced with the shame of having to lose the farm that may be in the in, in their uh, family for generations. The UK Daily Mail two years ago estimated the number of BT cotton farmers that have committed suicide because of the failure of BT was an amazing and incredible 125,000. 
And my friend Vandana Shiva puts the number at closer to 200,000. So this is another reason why GMOs are not designed to feed the world. But it goes on. They're also now taking money away from more appropriate technologies, which can increase yields in an appropriate way and increase biodiversity and the nourishment of the food. We know that from one study with over 12 million farms in 57 countries, they found a 79% increase in yield using sustainable practices. But these are not getting the attention of the money from the Gates Foundation and the U.S. government because they're not the sexy new technology that promotes U.S. interests. In addition, the biotech industry requires that farmers do not save seeds year after year, but invest in new seeds every year so that they can gain the farmer's money. This reduces the independence of the farmer and, re and dr drastically reduces the biodiversity, which is the basis of, seed, of, of food security. So we have a perfect storm working against feeding the world, which has prompted the most comprehensive report uh, in Earth about agriculture called the ISTAD report, um, which was uh, signed on by 60 countries and had over 400 scientific authors. It concluded that the current generation of GM crops has nothing to offer their goals of feeding the hungry world or eradicating poverty. Then how come it is that Monsanto is given the green light all over the world. Why? Well, let's start with the FDA. The FDA in 1992 gave the green light for GM foods to be put on the market. And the policy which came out at the end of May of 92 claimed that the agency was not aware of any information showing that GM foods were significantly different. And because of that, they said no safety testing whatsoever was required, no labeling was required. A company could put a GM crop on the market without even telling the FDA. The person in charge of that policy was Monsanto's former attorney. He later became Monsanto's vice president. He's now the U.S. food safety czar in the Obama administration. Is that Michael Taylor? That's right, Michael Taylor. And the sentence that basically provided the foundation for this hands-off policy, claiming that the agency was unaware of differences, was a lie. Documents made public from a lawsuit years later revealed that the overwhelming consensus among the FDA's own scientists were that GMOs were not only different, but dangerous. They could create allergies, toxins, new diseases, and nutritional problems. They had urged their superiors to require long-term studies and vehemently complained about the proposed uh, policy, which ended up being enacted. Is someone paying off the FDA, and how come it is that the FDA and the EPA are involved in this? Well, the payoff individually, it often comes from people at the FDA who take positions in the companies that they regulate. And this happens all the time, especially among the higher management at the FDA. They just, they regulate a company, they pass the drugs, they pass the food, and the next thing they know, they get a large salary at the companies whose products that they approved. And that happens over and over again for decades. There's also a question, in this case, it's not a payoff of Michael Taylor. Michael Taylor was Monsanto's former outside attorney. He moved into the number two position at the FDA, waived GMOs on the market, went to the USDA, worked on biotech issues, then got a fat salary from Monsanto as their chief lobbyist and VP in, in uh, D.C., and now he's back at the FDA as the U.S. food safety czar. So they end up getting paid off, but not necessarily in money while they're at the FDA, but by opportunities when they leave the FDA. There was a lot of shock in this book about 
how dicey all these relationships are. I mean, it's so deep. It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or they're Democrat presidents. They are all in cahoots. They are empowering these agencies. They are empowering these people to do this, period. And, and it goes on till today. I mean, the Obama administration has put perhaps even more probiotic people in key positions than previous presidents. He put the biotech governor of the year, Tom Vilsack from Iowa, into the position of secretary of agriculture. He put um, a probiotic person as the head of USAID, as the head of the USDA organization that gives money for research, um, as the chief agricultural negotiator for the uh, U.S. trade organization. So we have a situation now where it's not just the fox guarding the hen house. The fox is trying to get every other hen house to be, you know, uh, lined up with our probiotic policy. Um, in fact, the WikiLeaks release uh, this month showed that there has been the State Department is deployed uh, around the world to promote biotechnology. Um, a former ambassador to France in the Bush administration asked the government to retaliate against Europeans for uh, uh, rejecting GMOs and actually wanted to create a retaliation list that, quote, caused some pain. Um, a, the U.S. ambassador to Spain had met several times with Monsanto's director of the area in Europe, and then based on their request and the request of the minister of, uh, of someone in the Ministry of Environment, asked the U.S. government to intervene and put pressure on Brussels on their GMO um, policies. And even, even WikiLeaks showed that there was efforts to convince the Pope and the Vatican to promote GMOs through the, the Catholic religion, religion. So we have a situation where there's a full court press by the U.S. government. Now, a, there was a very revealing quote by uh, former Secretary of Agriculture Dan Glickman, who was uh, in the Clinton administration, and he would traveled around Europe trying to push GMOs. But at the end of the Clinton years, uh, he admitted in an interview that the, the policies, the pro-GM policies, were written into his speeches. And, when, and basically it said, you know, if you're against GMOs, you're Luddites, you're stupid, and that you felt like you were an alien disloyal by presenting an open-minded view. When he actually um, departed from his speech and ad-libbed his own concerns about GMOs publicly, he said he was slapped around by the Clinton administration and by industry and thought he might be fired. You see, so many of us believe that it's either this party or it's that party. It's the right or the left. And the fact is that they're all in cahoots with these kind of agencies and companies. This really could be a population reduction mechanism if it's not stopped. Well, you know, there's a lot of evidence that the consumption of GM foods by animals causes sterility. And, uh, so it could accidentally be. In fact, there was one interesting quote. Um, one of the scientists that discovered problems with genetically modified soy, uh, she's a senior researcher uh, at the Russian Academy of Sciences, and she fed GM soy to female rats, and more than half of their babies died within three weeks, and they were much smaller on average, and they couldn't reproduce. Um, and when she did this, she was, of course, attacked and vilified by scientists around the world who were basically the attack dogs of the biotech industry. And her boss said that he was getting pressure from his boss, and so he had to tell her no more research on GMOs. Well, one of her colleagues tried to comfort her by saying, well, maybe the GM soy will be solving the overpopulation problem. Doesn't surprise me at all.
It doesn't surprise me. What did surprise me was that the animals are clearly rejecting BT corn, anything with BT in it and pesticides. They're rejecting genetically modified organisms. They reject it typically when they have a choice. Um, when they don't have a choice, then they just eat it. But oftentimes they're, they, they, when they're given a choice, they refuse. Some animals refuse it altogether. Like there is buffalo in India that are fed cottonseed cakes. Now the cotton in India is designed to create an insecticide called BT. Many, many buffalo in the state of Haryana will not eat cottonseed cake made from the BT cotton. But most of those that do end up with reproductive problems, and many of them and their calves die as well. And also there's changes in the milk, etc., etc. So we have a situation where animals somehow know, and it's not just buffalo, of course, it's pigs, cows, geese, squirrels, elk, deer, raccoons, mice, rats, um, all have been shown to avoid GMOs when given a choice. Is it true that 70% of the cotton crops are GMO by now? Uh, 83% of the crops in the United States, excuse me, 93% of the crops in the United States are genetically modified either to withstand doses of herbicide or produce pesticide. Those are the two main traits. That's the reason why they genetically modify stuff. Monsanto makes things Roundup Ready, Roundup Ready soy, corn, cotton, canola, and sugar beets. And these Roundup Ready crops are designed not to die when sprayed with Monsanto's Roundup herbicide. Then there's corn and cotton plants that are engineered to produce a toxic insecticide, which breaks open the stomach of certain insects and kills them. However, the, ins the insecticide that it creates in its natural form as a bacterial spray um, is used even in organic agriculture, but there it biodegrades. But it's still not safe. When it was used to spray for gypsy moth infestation uh, in the Pacific Northwest, about 500 people complained of allergic reactions or flu symptoms, and some had to go to the hospital. Now in India, thousands of farm workers who pick the BT cotton that produces this BT toxin in thousands of times the concentration as that of the spray, they're reporting the same the same um, symptoms. Many of them are getting rashes all over their bodies, and I've seen pictures of these rashes even today. They're just absolutely horrible, disfiguring rashes among those that are walking and working in the cotton fields. Does that tell us not to buy cotton products from India right now or from other locations on the earth at this time? Well, well th there hasn't been uh, any research that I know of that evaluates the presence of the BT toxin in the finished products, but I'm told by expert scientists that there wouldn't be any production of BT in the cellulose. And so once it's cleaned and, and it shouldn't have the BT. Now I hear that, but I still want to see the data to be rest assured. Of course, buying organic cotton is a better choice for many reasons if people can, can have access to it. I understand that the zucchinis and the Hawaiian papayas are also genetically modified. Most Hawaiian papaya, a small percentage of zucchini and a small percentage of crookneck squash are genetically modified and they're designed to withstand certain viruses, plant viruses. So they put, they put basically viral DNA into these crops. Now, viral DNA can create viral proteins and more than 100 studies on viral proteins have shown that they can dismantle or, or um, harm an organism's ability to defend itself against viral infection and or be toxic to basic fundamental uh, cell, cell components of organisms. 
And so one of the issues that we're concerned about is eating the papaya or the zucchini or crookneck squash might actually increase a person's susceptibility to viral infection or promote diseases like cancer because these proteins have not been properly studied for these effects in humans eating these products. Isn't it true that these genetic insertions can change the floral bacteria in our gut? In fact, the only human feeding study ever published confirmed that. They fed uh, volunteers genetically modified soybeans, and then they looked inside the gut bacteria and found that um, three of the seven volunteers, um, even before they were fed the GM soy meal, had the GM Roundup-ready gene inserted into the DNA of the bacteria living inside their intestines, and it was functioning. So they had Roundup-ready gut bacteria. That means long after they had stopped eating genetically modified soy, in some previous time, the genes took up residence and continued to function inside them. Now, we don't know the medical implications of this. We know that the protein produced by that gene has properties of an allergen, similar to a dust mite allergen, so you might be continually triggered with an allergic response. We know that many crops have antibiotic-resistant marker genes in them, which if they transfer could might, might create super diseases uh, to withstand um, you know, medicinal uh, antibiotics. And then we have the Bt toxin, which if it transferred, might turn our intestinal bacteria into living pesticide factories. And then we have these viral genes, which if they transferred, might create these viral proteins, which might uh, reduce our, increase our susceptibility to viral infection and might uh, generate diseases. And so we may be colonizing the gut bacteria of North Americans. Now, it's not that normal plant genes would transfer to gut bacteria. There's many reasons why plant genes don't get picked up by bacterial genes, and if they do get picked up, they will probably not work. But the genes that are put into GM crops are bacterial genes, and there's, there are the basic uh, barriers that have stopped plant genes from transferring and functioning in bacteria are dismantled, which is why we may be seeing enormous problems in the health of North Americans because of the colonization of their gut bacteria by GM genes. How do you stay calm? Well, you know, I, I, I absolutely would burn out, burn to a crisp if I got so, you know, uh, emotional on all the things that I talk about. But one thing is absolutely obvious, and that is that we have the capacity to end GMOs. And even though it's one of the most dangerous of all the health and environmental concerns we're facing, it's also one of the easiest problems to solve because we can solve it based on just a small percentage of consumers rejecting GM brands, turning it into a marketing liability, and forcing it out of the market, as happened in Europe, as happened with bovine growth hormone in the United States, and as is starting to happen here in the U.S. That was the most exciting part of what I read, that there's hope for this if we step in and use our purchasing power to demand organic food and not to use GMO anything and that 28 million Americans buy natural food and organic food regularly, but 54 million buy less regularly. I think that's very exciting what we can do. And now there's an independent third-party non-GMO verification. Is that happening? Yes. Thousands of products are enrolled in what's called the non-GMO project. In fact, our, our shopping guide, which is at non-gmoshoppingguide.com, 
requires products to be enrolled in the non-GMO project, which does itself require uh, testing of any at-risk ingredients. So our non-GMO shopping guide, which is available as a download, a pocket guide, an iPhone application called Shop No GMO, it is basically in support of this new third-party system, which is taking the industry by storm, and it's become the gold standard. That's fantastic. I always wondered if the fruits and vegetables, even at Trader Joe's, were GMO or not. And when I asked, they didn't know. Trader Joe's has a policy of not allowing any GM products in its own brands. Now, more than 60% of the products sold at Trader Joe's are listed under the Trader Joe's brand. As far as fruits and vegetables go, the good news is there's only one fruit, and that's Hawaiian papaya, that's been genetically engineered and released into the market, and it's currently available. Uh, there's only been uh, three vegetables currently uh, available, and that's the zucchini, crookneck, squash, and the corn on the cob. No other uh, produce available in the produce section is at risk today of being genetically modified. But every one of them have been modified in a laboratory somewhere waiting to be introduced. Monsanto's uh, consultant back in 1999 admitted that Monsanto's goal was to genetically engineer 100% of all commercial seeds in the world within 15 to 20 years, and the consultant created the plans for them to achieve it. And one one um, company actually predicted that in 1999 that by 2004, 95% of all commercial seeds would be genetically modified. Now, fortunately, what happened just three weeks later was a uh, scientist who had been gagged had his gag order lifted by an order of the UK Parliament. He was able to speak about how genetically modified potatoes, supposedly harmless, caused massive damage to rats, and that it was the process of genetic engineering, not the specific gene that he inserted, which was the, obviously the cause. So when he went public, 750 articles were written in Europe, a storm of of consumer concern erupted, and the tipping point of consumer ejection was achieved there. And within a single week in April, virtually every major food company committed to stop using GM ingredients. So we saw a high-profile food safety scandal related to GMOs essentially eliminate uh, the plans of the biotech industry to take over the food supply and replace nature. We think that the percentage needed in the United States to cause a similar tipping point is only around 5%. 15 million people. And as you said, with 28 million Americans buying organic on a regular basis, we simply need to add the sentence to their criteria saying, well, when I don't buy organic, I am sure to buy non-GMO. Because it's that level of commitment by just 15 million Americans, 5.6 million households, that could end the genetic engineering of the food supply here. But it won't end it necessarily around the world. Well, it's a good start because one of the reasons, as we know from the WikiLeaks and also just tracking the history of GMOs, one of the big reasons why GMOs have surfaced around the world has been the support by the U.S. government. If we can create a collapse of the GM food industry in the United States uh, and have so many people aware of the dangers, it's very likely to result in a couple of things. One, the labeling of GMOs here, and two, the withdrawal of the efforts to push GMOs on other countries. We will also see other countries adopt the same kind of tipping point approach that worked here, and so the overall level of concern and awareness about GMOs could basically take care of the situation worldwide. That's terrific. I thought it was also very interesting that Monsanto could release some food on the market 
and not have to tell the FDA for six months. Isn't that strange? No, they don't have to tell the FDA at all. Really? At all. It's in the, the How is that possible? The notification is entirely voluntary. In fact, the, the tobacco companies uh, secretly grew genetically modified tobacco in Brazil, engineered to have higher levels of nicotine to make people more addicted. They smuggled it there. They smuggled the results here. They stuck it into their cigarettes. They didn't tell anyone. A lot of people find that the EPA is just as complicit and has just as many conflict of interest issues as the FDA. What do you think? Well, surveys among employees both at the EPA and the FDA reveal that policies have been changed and manipulated by corporations and special interests. I know the, the most recent um, survey at the FDA showed that um, more than 30% of the people there say that uh, cor- special interests and corporations um, can change policy, that they've seen it directly. About 25% have seen it in, the, in their own um, work, even repeatedly, where the policies have been manipulated by Congress or special interests or um, corporations. Um, in the EPA, it, it turns out that back in 1991, the, the, Bush White, the first Bush White House wanted to promote and fast-track GMOs. And so one of the key elements of their strategy was to not let Congress get involved. But there were no laws designed to regulate GMOs, and Congress is, what, who, is who makes laws. And so what they decided to do was to jerry-rig a situation where they were going to use current laws that had nothing to do with GMOs as a way to regulate them. That way, Congress would never would not get their hands involved. And so they called what they, uh, what they named a regulatory framework, where the FDA, EPA, and USDA each take a chunk. But their regulatory framework is based on obsolete laws that don't take into consideration the specific risks associated with GMOs. EPA was given the uh, jurisdiction over plants that produce pesticides. That's because the EPA is concerned about pesticides in general. But they're not given the authority of the entire plant and all the things that can go wrong, just the pesticidal protein that's produced in the plant. And so they give an okay to BT corn and cotton. There was a potato on the market that's been removed. And they just basically said, since BT is safe, uh, That's outrageous. Yeah, and they don't, they don't even require a significant amount of testing to uh, prove it. And I testified at the in an EPA hearing and explained that because of this jerry-rigged regulatory framework, they have been basically going with wrong assumptions, not taking into consideration even published science by government scientists showing that BT is toxic and allergenic, showing that basically most of their assumptions about the safety of BT was just simply that, assumptions and not scientific and already disproved in most cases. What was the response to that? Well, they didn't respond verbally. It was just a chance to hear you know, people responding in a, in a committee meeting. Uh, but we haven't seen anything from the EPA which leads us to believe that they have gotten the science. They simply, in one case... They, they, they have specific criteria for approving BT, but when it turns out that the BT didn't even meet that criteria, when they re-registered it, they ignored all those science, that science, never even discussed it, and just re-registered it for another seven years. What does that mean to you? Well, it means that we have a corporatocracy in place where it's hard to see where the government ends and the biotech industry begins. 
in the case of bovine growth hormone, it was very obvious. Michael Taylor was in charge of policy at the FDA. Uh, Margaret Miller had done research at, at Monsanto on RBGH. Then she became branch chief at a division that, in, that evaluated her own research. Uh, Susan Sechin was uh, in a contractor for Monsanto working on RBGH. She became the lead reviewer of RBGH, that's recombinant bovine growth hormone. Uh, Richard Burroughs, who was an independent veterinarian working at the FDA, said that the review process was completely inadequate. He was fired from his job so that they would push RBGH quicker through the, through the system. That, by the way, RBGH is an animal drug, and so that does require a review. It's not like the food, which doesn't require review, but the review was completely ridiculous. In fact, the Canadian government scientists did an analysis of the U.S. FDA's evaluation of bovine growth hormone and said it was basically ridiculous. It was, um, they just assumed that everything that was told to them by the industry was true. They didn't look at key questions that were about human safety, and they ignored some of the evidence that showed problems in the animals that were exposed to the drug. So it shows me that the current regulatory authorities are not to be trusted when it comes to evaluating the safety of GMOs. And of course, we can look at drugs and find similar patterns, but my focus is GMOs. And that's why we recommend that people take it in their own hands. In fact, it's not just us. The American Academy of Environmental Medicine last year came out with a policy paper urging all physicians to prescribe non-GMO diets to everyone. They said the animal feeding studies show a causal relationship with disorders and that some of those disorders include reproductive problems, accelerated aging, organ damage, gastrointestinal problems, etc. Do you think that that's why also a lot of animals in people's homes are sick from the food that they're eating? Are they using GMO in animal feed for pets? Absolutely. In fact, the pets get the byproducts of the U.S. of the, of the industrial human food supply. And so they actually move in parallel. I talked to one veterinarian who has many, many people who follow him as a syndicated columnist, and he said when GM uh, products were introduced in 1996, a lot of cats and dogs started to get allergies. And when he recommends to the owners to switch their animals to organic feed, the allergies typically go away. Now, a lot of people are going to be concerned who either A, can't afford to go to Whole Foods or do go to Trader Joe's. There's a new market called Sprouts that's up, and I actually called them on the phone and asked if they carry GMO fruits and vegetables, and they said no, but I like things in writing. I like commitments from companies. The other thing is, what about local farmers in the U.S.? Can we trust that the local farmers, or do we have to go there, or do we have to talk to them to eat their food, or what's the suggestion? Well, again, if you're going with produce from local farmers, you only have to be concerned about four products at current. Now, the biotech industry wants to introduce many more products, but today, for produce, you have zucchini, crookneck squash, corn on the cob, and you have uh, papaya from Hawaii. So as far as papaya from Hawaii goes, um, because it cross-pollinates on the tree, uh, even if you have an organic tree, if it's cross-pollinated, the fruit that the tree produces, the flesh is non-GMO, but the seeds are GMO. So some unwitting organic farmers have actually taken the seeds out of particularly delicious papaya and planted them for their new plantation, and it turns out they have 100% GM papaya growing in their organic farm. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but how the heck is that possible? You mean, you mean from a yeah, biological to take, like, Yeah, how does that happen? Because that means you can never get rid of these things. 
Well, there's a lot of reasons why we can never completely get rid of them. I mean, if you think about this self-propagating genetic contamination, the, the genes that have been released already in our ecosystem can outlast the effects of global warming and nuclear waste. We, it just goes on and on. It just reproduces. It crosses with non-GM members of the same species, with members with wild relatives of other species. Uh, canola, for example, is related to wild mustard and all these other things. It could ac- actually cross with broccoli and cabbage. The sugar beets that are planted for sugar can also cross with table, with table beets and chard. So we have a situation where we have a runaway uh, contamination and pollution of our gene pool. Now, we can certainly reduce the exposure dramatically by getting rid of it out of the marketplace, but we we don't have the technology to fully clean it up today. When you have a multinational company with the kind of power and governmental empowerment that Monsanto has, and they already assert, they're declaring, they want to own the entire food supply by a certain date, Don't you think that that sociopathic disconnect when it's empowered is dangerous for the whole planet? In an unprecedented way, Kim, in an unprecedented way. We've never, ever deployed a technology like GMOs, where we feed the products of an infant science to the entire population and release the crops into the environment where they can never be recalled. Furthermore, um, we talked about uh, reducing biodiversity Monsanto wants to introduce Terminator technology, which will make sterile seeds. And the reason why Terminator technology was developed, according to the developers, was to target the 1.4 billion farmers in the world that save seeds. And by saving seeds, it means that they end up growing seeds that work best in their own climate and geography. So we have millions and millions of types of seeds on the earth that have this diversity which provide us the security, especially in times of climate change. Because when there's changed climates or there's new diseases, it's the diversity where we can find the plants that can survive in the changed conditions. But companies like Monsanto, and they're the largest seed company in the world, they want to change all that. They want to divert all of the purchasing and all the the, uh, farmers to purchase only the seeds from their catalogs, which is obviously going to be... A monopoly. It's a global monopoly. And it'll wipe out the diversity, which is the basis of our security. So they're willing to bet on the, on the lives of billions of people in order to promote their bottom line. What about baby food? Unfortunately, baby food is also subject to GMOs. You have the soy infant formula, which if it doesn't say non-GMO, you can assume it's GMO, which is obviously horrific. Children are most at risk to the potential dangers of GMOs, particularly those who are very young. Uh, even nursing infants can pick up allergens from uh, the milk of their mothers. Um, children under two years old are much more um, likely to get allergies. The kids don't have a developed blood-brain barrier or a, a barrier between their digestive system and their blood. And so what they take in could have a more systemic impact on their whole health. In addition, um, you know, you have a situation where they take the food and turn it into their own organs, whereas once you're older, you mostly use food as energy. And so if there's nutrient problems, it'll show up more in the structure and shape and function of their organs and systems. That's why for for nutritional research, they typically use younger animals, and that's also why Monsanto often uses older animals when it tries to demonstrate that the GM foods are safe.
So right now we have a situation where uh, we have an epidemic of childhood diseases and disorders. Autism is, is just skyrocketed. Food allergies have skyrocketed. And many of the, of the, there's an abrupt change and increase in many of these statistics starting around 1996 when GMOs were introduced. And also, of course, in 1994 when bovine growth hormone was introduced into the milk. So we think that there's a direct reason why there's runaway diseases and disorders, specifically among kids who are most susceptible. And I think that when we get rid of GMOs, we'll see a lot of that turn around. What do you think about the fact that herbicides are built into these seeds? Well, you know, this is one of the um, brainchilds of industrial technology, which basically touts uh, inputs like herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers, because that's what they can make money from. Whereas if you have a diverse and sustainable system, you don't need these type of inputs uh, certainly to the extent that they're used now, and in many cases, not at all. Um, it was put onto the uh, the industrial agricultural system because of surplus military material after World War II. The, um, the nerve gas was used as pesticides. The bomb material was used as fertilizer. And so a lot of the attention and U.S. money and agricultural research has gone to support the agenda of the biotech, excuse me, of the industrial agricultural system to promote the sale of these products, which ultimately cause uh, environmental devastation and poor health because of the lack of trace minerals and nutrients in the crops. Now, so the, the building in of the insecticide into the crop is another step in this industrial model, and it's a very dangerous step. It's frightening. It's absolutely frightening. I can't even believe it. There's so much evidence that the BT toxin is, is dangerous um, when, it was, when the BT toxin by itself, which is created by the corn and the cotton, when it's, created by, when it's just tested by itself in its natural form, it creates an immune response in mice. Now they find that when they feed mice the BT corn, they also develop immune responses, showing that, the, that their bodies are rejecting it. One of the arguments that are made, that's made by the industry and also by the EPA is that BT does not affect humans or mammals. But we have these mice studies that show that they do. We have the human studies or the human experience showing that, you know, hundreds of people are reacting to the BT spray. And it also does bind with proteins inside the gut of primates. And we have so much evidence now that they completely have to turn a blind eye to even published peer-reviewed studies. Now, if we think about what BT is supposed to do, it's supposed to break open the stomach of insects and kill them. Now, it turns out if it does cause leaky gut syndrome in humans, that can in turn cause autoimmune disease and, and allergies, and some people link that with autism. And these are the things that we're seeing on the rise. You know, even with peer review, I did a whole piece on peer review, even many of the peer review studies, they're fixed. Who's evaluating in the peer review? People don't even get to know who their accusers are, who doesn't like their work, or why they don't like their work. And so even with peer review, they can be fixed. In fact, in, in Genetic Roulette, my second book, part three catches the industry red-handed rigging their research. For example, in a peer-reviewed study uh, where the FDA concluded, they just went along with the conclusions of the study saying that pasteurization destroys 90% of the bovine growth hormone in milk. When you actually look at the study, they 
pasteurized the milk 120 times longer than normal, but they only destroyed 19% of the hormones. So they spiked the milk with 147 times the amount of hormone that's normally present, then heated it 120 times longer than normal, and then only under those rigged conditions destroyed 90%. And that's just one example of many, many peer-reviewed studies where when the experts look at it who are not you know, biased, they find that it was designed to avoid finding problems, and in some cases, quite blatantly. I did an interview with Robert Cohen, who you mentioned several times in Seeds of Deception, and really had my eyes opened about milk and cheese and what's happening with the milk industry. Frightening. Frightening. Absolutely. And, and Robert did point out, he did bring a lot of information to the surface about this bovine growth hormone in his research. Um, and we also see uh, an, a strategy now to try and change the labeling of it to make it impossible to label things as non-RBGH. And fortunately, an appeals court this year overturned um, a lower court's decision to allow Ohio to ban labels that say RBGH-free or RBST-free or artificial hormone free. See, this to me is criminal. This is criminal activity not to allow people to label their products. And how does Monsanto get away with not labeling? Didn't they try to destroy other producers that were labeling? Yeah, they sued some dairies because they were labeling their products as non-RBGH. And they referred to a disclaimer in a white paper written by an FDA executive, which suggested, it didn't require, but it just suggested that if a dairy labels itself, its products as non-RBGH, it should also include the statement that according to the FDA, there's no difference in cows that have been supplemented with RBGH compared to those that haven't been supplemented. Now that sentence was written by Michael Taylor, Monsanto's former attorney who later became Monsanto's vice president. It was never intended to be a requirement, but the lawyers for Monsanto touted it as if it was, and since then has been able to convince certain state governments to make it a requirement. And so now you'll see products that have that disclaimer on them, which is completely false, because in fact, the FDA's own scientists and even Monsanto's studies show that the milk from cows treated with bovine growth hormone has more pus, more antibiotics, more bovine growth hormone, and most especially, more IGF-1, a very strong hormone that's linked to higher rates of breast cancer, prostate cancer, and colon cancer. It's also linked to higher rates of fraternal twins, and is probably why the U.S. has much higher rates of those twins than the U.K., where RBGH is banned. Do you think that in the times to come, there will be food labeling and people will have the courage to do it? Oh, yeah. What we're going to do is this. We're going to create a tipping point of consumer rejection. We only need a small percentage of shoppers to do it. And I think between the shopping guide that we are circulating and the information that's now out there on the health dangers, it's pretty easy to convince people to avoid GMOs with a sense of urgency. Now, already, even without our evidence, more than half of Americans say that they would avoid GMOs if they were labeled. So we already have the majority on our side. So if we circulate the shopping guide and a little additional information to encourage those to go forward with this commitment, it will turn GMOs into a marketing liability. Once that happens, the grocery industry will stop lobbying against labeling because they'll have already taken GMOs out. Without their uh, lobbying effort, and also with more people aware of and agitated about the health dangers of GMOs, 
the congressmen and senators will get the picture, and it'll be much easier to institute a very popular law, because 95% of Americans want GMOs labeled. Even Obama said he would require labeling if elected, but he hadn't, hasn't done it yet. I wonder so we, why. Well, you see, there's so much evidence that if it was labeled, it would kick GMOs entirely out of the food supply, because no one wants to put the skull and crossbones of contains GMOs on their label. And so uh, the U.S. is dedicated right now to promoting GMOs. It's still the mandated position for the FDA. It's the mandated position for the State Department. And so it w by labeling it and giving consumers actual choice, uh, they would uh, destroy GMOs. And so in order to protect the economic interests of five biotech companies, they ignore the desire of 95% of Americans. With this insidious global agenda, which is obviously what it is, how do you see a company like Monsanto, even if the market says no, being willing to walk away when they have billions involved in this? Well, they have become the largest seed company on, the earth, on earth. They bought Seminus, which is the largest fruit and vegetable seed company. They bought a lot of different companies up. So they can revert to conventional seed breeding. Furthermore, they can use the tools of biotechnology to do something what's called marker-assisted selection, where you identify the genes or gene families associated with certain traits. Then when you do natural breeding, instead of having to grow out all of the offspring to see which ones have those traits, you use an evaluation technique on a part of the plant to see if that plant has those genes or gene families, and then you just grow those. And so it makes the process of, of selective breeding um, sometimes quicker and sometimes less expensive. And so they can actually maintain their existence as a seed company using the tools of biotechnology and eliminating transgenics, where you'd actually take genes from different species and combine them artificially. I think what you're describing is the company's potential to be on the good side for humanity and to do good things with the food supply. But I think when you have a sociopathic disconnect in consciousness, in an organization, we're talking about a complete shift in consciousness. Absolutely. I mean, what we are talking about, I mean, I've talked to Monsanto people and former Monsanto people, and it's just amazing what we've discovered. I mean, one former scientist said that his colleagues were doing safety studies on the milk from cows treated with bovine growth hormone. And they said they found the IGF-1 levels, which was linked to cancer, and the three of them stopped drinking milk, unless it was organic. He said other colleagues found there was a result by feeding uh, rodents, genetically modified varieties, probably corn, and that instead of withdrawing the corn, they simply rewrote the study to make it look less damaging. I talked to one person who was recruited by Monsanto to be a salesman, and he didn't, he didn't listen much to the recruiter, but he got inspired by the words of the former CEO of Monsanto, Robert Shapiro, who described how GMOs would, would help the world and do all sorts of great things. And so when he took the job and had the orientation meeting in the headquarters in St. Louis, he raised this point, praising Robert Shapiro and saying how great it was that they were going to do this. Then at the end of the meeting, he was pulled aside by a vice president who set him straight. He said, wait a minute, what Robert Shapiro says is one thing. What we do is something else. He's the front man that tells the story. We don't even know what he's talking about. We're here to make money.
And that's why I don't think that Monsanto will make that change, even if the market doesn't want it. Because I don't think that this organization has any interest in doing anything that's human, that's of humanity, that's for humanity. They'd have to have a complete restructuring of consciousness to do something different. They were the ones that told us that PCBs were safe. Uh, that's their used for uh, lubrication and insulation. And it turns out there are now PCBs in everyone's blood, in the blood of all mammals on Earth, and it's very, very toxic, and they knew this. A lawsuit forced them to reveal the documentation, and at one point they were poisoning the people in the, la in the factory town of Anniston, Alabama, at very high rates. They hired a consultant, and the consultant put a fish in the nearby stream, Within 10 seconds, the fish floated to the top dead, spurted blood, and lost its skin. So they knew that they were causing tremendous environmental damage. They knew they were causing health damage. And yet the memo circulated by a, a chief person about PCBs in response to the, to the concerns was, we can't afford to lose $1 of business, end quote. They ended up getting fined, convicted, and fined uh, for one, $700 million. And they also got convicted of outrage. And outrage is an amazing um, uh, 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 Alabama law, which is the rare claim of outrage, typically requires conduct so outrageous in character and extreme in degree as to go beyond all possible bounds of decency, so as to be regarded as atrocious and utterly intolerable in civilized society. I mean, that has Monsanto's name all over it. They were also found, according to a researcher at the EPA, uh, Monsanto, uh, and this was not proven, uh, so it's just alleged, they were hiding the toxicity of dioxin by rigging their research and switching over some people from the, um, from the group that got cancer or disease to those that didn't. And some of their other sleight of hand ultimately prevented thousands of Vietnam vets from getting compensation for damage due to Agent Orange. And there's millions, of course, in Vietnam that have also been deprived of this justice. They also are promoted, promoted DDT. And so we know that they have generations of lying as part of their history. And yet, according to the current FDA policy, they are in charge of determining whether their GMOs are safe. It's really frightening. Absolutely frightening. What has Vedanta Shiva said about this to you? What can you share with us? Well, Vedanta Shiva is a fantastic orator. She's a physicist. She's a seed saver. Um, I visited her farm in India where they have a fantastic seed bank. She is organizing on a very practical level ways in which the local farmers in India can resuscitate the biodiversity of seeds and then share their seeds with others and to counter the, the damage from industrial agriculture. Before the Green Revolution, India had over 250,000 types of rice. That was shrunk down to basically a handful. There's a few hundred now that Vandana Shiva's seed-saving organization is making available. But that's 250,000 varieties gone down to virtually nothing. And so she's part of the solution to this issue. And she talks about, you know, that food is more powerful than bombs. And seeds control food. 
So if you control the seeds, you control the food, you control the people. It's very much about control. And we can see that that kind of vicious mindset for Monsanto could easily be uh, such that control of the population in terms of forcing them to feed Monsanto's pockets could be an easy outcome of their plans. You know, one of my greatest fears is the food safety bill that's been introduced to Congress. I don't understand it, but part of it has to do with not allowing us to grow gardens, to grow your own food. It's really scary. So I think that there's many tentacles of the agenda of Monsanto that are coming to Congress and the Senate through different faces, different aspects of getting this thing tied down so that they own and control everything. You know, it's, it's something that they've done all over the world. I've traveled to 32 countries and I've seen so many countries hijacked by Monsanto, where Monsanto's people write the laws in, and they actually create ways that they can, that the regulators can, can give a green light, a kind of a rubber stamp to the GMOs without proper evaluation. I've seen it in India, I've seen it in Brazil, I've seen it in Europe, and of course the United States. So they're actually very skilled at manipulating governments and public opinion. Much more skilled they are than, than manipulating the DNA. Do you really think it's skilled in manipulating governments or is it skilled in working with governments? <laughs> because it sounds like the governments are also complicit and our leaders are complicit. I've had some experience with government leaders, some of whom uh, were completely complicit and they generally don't meet with me. Those that are independent do. I've met with presidents and cabinet members and hundreds of parliamentarians, senators and congressmen. And uh, one guy, for example, who was responsible for the decisions of whether to approve GMOs for his country, when he took the position, he was immediately wooed by Monsanto. And one of the first things they told him was, oh, you should be getting a high-paying job from Monsanto soon after you, you know, regulate GMOs into your country. So they were basically offering him this kind of bribe where if the, he goes along with it, he will end up making a lot of money working for Monsanto. We're really talking about the food mafia, are we not? The consciousness that's moving Monsanto. If you want to own and control everything, what is that? And if let's, you can... Let's, it, let's say clearly it's an organized crime. Yes. It's an organized crime against humanity. It's an organized crime against nature. And it is a situation where all future generations will have to deal with our folly because this is the nature of genetics. We are manipulating the most fundamental level of biology, and we don't have a clue. Most of the assumptions that were used as the basis for safety claims when GMOs were put forward have already been proven false. Every few months, we discover more about the DNA so that we change our definition of the gene. We originally thought that one gene created one protein, created one trait. In fact, genes operate as networks, and the whole foundation of genetic engineering this concept of the central dogma of one gene, one trait, has, was completely collapsed when the Human Genome Project announced how few genes they actually found in human beings. And yet, even though the foundational assumptions about biotechnology have been proven false, because it's already on the market, they don't reevaluate it from scratch, they simply incrementally lie, distort, and deny. And right now, the amount of evidence that they have to try and deny is so overwhelming. 
it is easy to convince virtually any open-minded person that GMOs are unsafe. I go and speak to doctors' conferences all the time, and I do a pre- and post-test hand-raise about how vigilant people are about avoiding GMOs, rating themselves from 1 to 100. It turns out, within a single lecture, within 30 minutes, an entire room of doctors can all of a sudden become absolutely vigilant to avoid GMOs. I think this is also what happened to the bees, the honeybees. Certain forms of honey are infected. And I think this is also why a lot of the bees are dying, aside from chemical spraying in the air. Don't you? Well, I think that the reason, why, the reason why the U.S. has a higher rate of collie collapse disorder than Europe is probably due to GMOs. But I don't say that GMOs are the cause of CCD because it's found in countries where there's no or little GMOs grown. I think it more has to do with the spraying of the air with chemicals, and that project that goes on all over the world may have something to do with that. There's some other evidence related to something called neonicotinoid seed treatments or insecticides. Um, What happened is this. Uh, There's a certain uh, rootworm that attacks corn, and when they tested the genetically modified BT corn designed to kill the rootworm, it turns out that it didn't do a good job in the beginning when the seed was most susceptible. And so they figured out a way to take certain insecticides and, and apply them to the seeds themselves so that they act in a time-released manner over the first few weeks of the life of the plant. So that every, you know, throughout the plant creates this insecticide. But the insecticides that are from neonicotinoid sources can disorient bees, and they lose the ability to find their way back to the hive. And so one of the aspects of colony collapse disorder is empty hives. They don't necessarily find thousands of bees dead in the hive. They find no bees. And it turns out that when they banned these neonicotinoid seed treatments in Italy, colony collapse disorder disappeared in every case except two or three places where they had used seeds created from the year before that still had treatment. In addition, they found that the, they couldn't figure out the vector as to how the, seed, how the bees were actually getting this insecticide. But then they figured out that when these worker bees are fanning the, uh, the queen throughout the night and keeping sort of basically the temperature control unit, they get really tired and weak. And that in the morning, they leave the hive and fly to the nearest plant to get nutrients from the liquid which has been secreted from the plants onto the petals and leaves and stems. And that this particular liquid from the plants that have been using the seed treatment has this insecticide in high levels. And so that's how they realized that these uh, bees could be exposed to the neonicotinoid seed treatments. Now, of course, the U.S. is ignoring the evidence and hasn't banned it. It has been banned in several countries in Europe. But it is an absolutely serious situation because bees and their ability to pollinate is absolutely essential in our uh, food supply. I have two more questions, and I really appreciate your time today. One is that even for the meat eaters who buy organic meat, still may be eating an animal that was fed GM feed, correct? Well, organic, as opposed to natural, organic does not allow animals to be fed GM grains. Okay. And, and if you have a, a, any animal products that have been in the non-GMO project, then they actually even um, do a test of the grains. 
Now, if you buy something that says natural or not raised with antibiotics or hormones or even grass-fed, it doesn't, if it doesn't say 100% grass-fed, it just says grass-fed, they often quote Finnish animals by feeding them grain, and the grain is often GMO. And so the issue is if you don't buy, if you want to avoid animals and animal products that have not been fed GMO, you have to buy either organic, 100% grass-fed, or wild-caught. And the last question I have for you has to do with Michael Pollan. What is your understanding of Michael Pollan's contribution to us better understanding the differences between organic farming, let's say, and GMO? Michael had a fantastic contribution on October 29th, 1998, in a large cover story in the New York Times magazine about the BT potato. He revealed the pathetic state of regulation. Uh, he showed that basically there's huge loopholes and gaps where the EPA is supposed to cover one thing, but they don't. They think the EFDA is doing it. The FDA is supposed to cover something. They think the EPA is doing it. They ignore all these effects. And it was interesting. He indicated that according to the, the um, communications officer for Monsanto, he said that it shouldn't be Monsanto's uh, responsibility to determine the safety of the food. That's the FDA's responsibility. But as you recall from earlier in the conversation, the FDA's policy is that it's Monsanto's determination that determines whether the food's safe. And so it's basically no one's looking at it. And so he had a very fascinating article. It resulted, I think, in coverage by, the, by ABC News, but then it fizzled out. And the next we heard about it in the U.S. was the monarch butterfly scare um, midway into 1999. Now, I've talked to Michael, we've had lunch, we, we correspond. Um, I don't know how much he knows about the safety issue. We didn't talk about it, and, I don't, and when I sent him my book, he ended up giving it to some of his students who were doing uh, reports on GMOs, so I'm not sure if he's actually read it. So he's a project. I, I love his work. He's a brilliant writer. When I quoted him in, in Seeds of Deception, I had to leave excerpts, large excerpts in because he's such a brilliant writer, I couldn't break it down. Um, and he's done a fantastic job in raising the awareness in the United States of critical food issues. I'm hoping that he looks more into the health issues of GMOs and adds that to his repertoire, because I think that'll go a long way to repairing the system by changing people's choices. Do you think the independent third-party non-GMO verification process who does that? Is there an organization that does it, or is it multiple organizations that verify that a product is non-GMO? Can you tell the audience a little bit more detail about that? Sure. The Non-GMO Project is the name of the third-party organization that puts its um, seal of approval on products. It's called, and you'll see a, a label more and more, especially this coming year, um, it'll say Non-GMO Project Verified. Thousands of products are enrolled. They have contracted with a company that does an evaluation of the documentation provided by the company to show that the food is meeting the standard. And the standard requires testing uh, if there is at-risk ingredients used. And so we are completely endorsing the non-GMO project at our Institute for Responsible Technology, our non-GMO shopping guide available at non-gmoshoppingguide.com requires that products are enrolled in the non-GMO project. You can also use the iPhone application, Shop No GMO, or you can buy 25 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 shopping guides 
on our website at responsibletechnology.org and give them away and 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 to tell you it's a very very popular gift people always ask for more that's the first response people give to me when i hand them a shopping guide they say can i take more for my family friends etc so um right now we're in a situation where we are actually already changing the market supermarket news predicted in uh, december 7th 2009 the 2010 would show an unprecedented upsurge of consumer awareness and concern about gmos Soon after, it was reported that GMOs, not that GMO-free was the fastest-growing store brand label in the country. It's now the fourth fastest overall health and wellness claim. A year after their prediction to the day, I appeared on Dr. Oz for an opening segment there, which was the biggest exposure for a TV entertainment show covering the GMO issue. We're seeing more people now in the United States than ever before taking up this cause and very avidly being non-GMO eaters. And so we are providing a platform for them to be organized and to basically create and, and roll out a national movement. We've got millions of people now avoiding GMOs. We need to get our tipping point level. So if you go to responsibletechnology.org, first of all, sign up for the free electronic newsletter so we can stay in touch. But there's an opportunity to sign up for the non-GMO Tipping Point Network, which is where you can hook up with people locally or nationally. That's fantastic. And so we have, we're have we targeting the national uh, work, uh, action groups, are targeting specific demographics like healthcare practitioners and schools and chefs and, and parents of young kids and green groups, et cetera, et cetera. And local groups can have non-GMO potlucks and present and give, have presenters. Uh, we're teaching people how to speak on GMOs. We taught nearly 200 people in 2010. We're starting... Uh, a webinar series for 2011. In January, we're teaching people how to convert an audience into a local non-GMO action group. We're ba- we have a network of distribution so that our articles and materials go out to millions of people every month. So right now, we are putting together a national network to create the tipping point. So everyone listening to this, the action steps are as follows. One, Buy non-GMO, and that may, that's made easy by the non-GMO shopping guide. Two, go to responsibletechnology.org, sign up for the newsletter, and if you'd like, sign up for the Tipping Point Network to then be put in touch with like-minded individuals in your area or in your field where you can, have, you can be equipped, whether you want to just spend five minutes a week posting stuff on your Facebook or whether you want to lead a national working group or, or action group. This is an opportunity for us to, to get it together now quickly to, to stave off the threats that we're seeing on the horizon, like GM salmon, like GM alfalfa, like trying to re-cert, re, re-non-regulate or reintroduce the sugar beets. There's all sorts of threats on the horizon. This is the critical time. And if anyone has any energy about the issue, I invite them to join us. I'm so honored that you came to the show today. And, you know, you remind me of Mohammed Yunus of the Grameen Bank. You remind me of him. What he did for banking, you're doing for food, along with Vedanta Shiva. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been listening to, learning from, and talking with Jeffrey Smith, the author of the international best-selling book, Seeds of Deception, Exposing Industry and Government Lies About the Safety of the Genetically Engineered Foods You're Eating, and also the author of Genetic Roulette. God bless you. Thank you so much for what you're doing, and I look forward to learning more from you in the future. Thanks again, Jeffrey. You're most welcome, Kim. Thank you.